How many of you have felt at times some kind of doubt creeping up in your life where you thought, I don't know if I can really believe what I believe? Right, I have. In fact, I was talking with someone today, and he asked me something. It was Josh. I'm not going to keep him a secret. <laughs> he asked me something about where did you learn all these different things? And I told him it was not just a process of deciding I wanted to know all this stuff, but it came as a result of really struggling through a lot of personal doubt myself. Does that make sense? And as I struggled through things, I would look for answers naturally. I'm kind of an analytical person. My degree is in chemistry. I almost had a second degree in philosophy, and I just like to think that way. And so as I struggle with doubt, I would look for answers. And a lot of this is what I found. And this isn't unique to me. There are great resources that you can go to as well. Pull out one of those best facts little booklets, and you can follow with me tonight with some of this. But on the back of it, you're going to see, for more great information, please read I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Geisler and Turk. I would suggest that as an overall good book for anybody in this room. I think it'll probably answer about 90% of any of the questions you could ever have about God. It's probably 400, 450 pages. It's a great read. It's fascinating. You'll love it. And it's written by some top-notch people. Next, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. It's maybe less on the analytical side, but it is compelling nonetheless. It's very thorough. He does a good job. And when I say less analytical, it's not that it was less thoughtful. It's just he does a really wonderful and fresh approach with all this, giving a good foundation for your belief. Finally, for those of you that are very rigorous and want to really know, check out Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. Reasonable Faith is Craig's masterpiece. And Craig, if you don't know who he is, he's the one that Dawkins refuses to debate. So that should tell you something about his credibility or his legitimacy in this whole debate. And that's kind of his hallmark work, where he really defined the validity of the Christian worldview. And he did a very, very good job with it. It's very, very intense, though. I've had a lot of people pick it up and say, I just can't do it. It's too intense. But I'd suggest you check it out nonetheless. You can check out Craig's website at reasonablefaith.org, and if you go to that link that I have on the back there, he has about 300 common questions that are answered, and he does a phenomenal job with it. He'll do things like, what about the Higgs boson that they just confirmed recently? Does that contradict the standard theory and the cosmological argument for God? We'll talk about the cosmological argument for God in a minute. And he just takes it and unravels it. I mean, he does a great job, so that's just one example. So if you're looking for good answers, go to that website. Check out the rest of the info on there, too. The God Solution Show is the show that we do on a lot of these issues. Those are just some places that you can get some answers to different things that might come up in your mind. Tonight, I want to give you a tool that has come out of a lot of years of thinking about this stuff that I think will help you. The next time somebody says, Josh, how can you be so confident in your faith in Christ? Well, a lot of times, if you've ever been put on the spot like that, you freak out and you go, I, I don't know. But I know somebody that knows. You should talk to somebody, right? We've all kind of been in those awkward situations. My hope is that this would at least give you some rails to run on when you have those conversations. You could open up this booklet, and you could share with them some of why you can believe what you believe. I put a lot of QR codes on there. So this one, for example, talks about the beginning of the universe and life. If you scan that, it's going to go to an article that kind of deals with that subject a little bit more. It's by no means the only article on that topic, though, so you could obviously get more. It's just a, a next step. All right. That was a whole lot to intro this. I hope you're still 
uh, kind of with me here. You can follow along in, that, in this booklet. I'm not just going to stick to this. There's a lot to go over, so I'm going to kind of try and keep it short. And definitely, if you have more questions, I'd love to talk more in the future. So I wanted to start by saying that apologetical arguments, and if you're not familiar with that term, apologetics is the, I guess you'd say the science or the art of defending the Christian faith, or defending any faith. And Christian apologetics would be defending the Christian faith. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. It doesn't mean that you're apologizing for your faith. But when you're going to give a defense of your faith, a good way to approach that is first to give a defense for the existence of God, and then to give a defense for the accuracy of the Bible. Does that make sense? I think that is a logical kind of step-by-step way of approaching this. And this is the way this booklet does it. It's two words, best and facts, and the first word deals with the evidence for God. This is not by any means all the evidence for God. And there are many more classical and modern arguments for the existence of God that there's no way I could include here. These are some of the stronger ones, in my opinion, and I think they'll serve you well in any kind of conversations you have about this. The second word, facts, is going to deal with the integrity of the scriptures. It's going to help you defend why you believe in the Bible, not just the random idea of a God that might or might not exist. So we're going to go through those two different things. Uh, This is obviously a very broad and simplified approach, so I would encourage you to keep investigating, and I gave you some of those resources that you could look up on after this conversation. So before we get into the evidence, I want you to consider the alternatives. I would much rather talk about why I believe in Christ rather than why I don't believe in X, Y, or Z. Does that make sense? But before we talk about why we believe in Christ, I kind of just wanted to cover a couple bases. Number one, naturalism, the option that all of this exists for no reason and there was no cause and there was no God above it all. Naturalism doesn't work. It doesn't work logically, and it doesn't work scientifically. We could talk more in depth, but I'll just give you a few different concepts that are very important. Number one, the fossil record doesn't show the gradual evolution that would be necessitated by a naturalistic perspective. Even if it did, that wouldn't give us reason to be naturalists. That would just tell us a little bit about maybe the biological history of the planet. But anyway, the fossil record doesn't match up to evolution. We can talk more about that later. Second of all, evolution does not have a valid mechanism. We've all heard about natural selection plus random mutations over time creates speciation. As a chemistry major and somebody who took a lot of biology, I can tell you confidently that we don't have positive mutations that increase a genome, giving natural selection anything new to work with. Does that make sense? There's not going to be a mechanism for speciation, at least on a broad enough scale for there to be actual new organisms coming into being. So I'm not talking about bacterial mutations. Bacteria, by definition, are gene swappers. That's kind of like their identity. And so a lot of times people try and stick you with like some gene mutations going on in bacteria. And while that's interesting, it's not evidence for the type of evolution that would have needed to have existed for all the diversity that we see on this planet. We can talk more about that later too. Second of all, even if all that, even if we gave them that stuff, we gave them the fossil record, gave them the mechanism, there still needs to be a legitimate explanation for the beginning of life. How did life come from non-life? Scientists call that abiogenesis. There's no statistically valid way for life to come from non-life. There's not, it doesn't happen. Nobody's ever done it. You've all heard of the Miller-Urey experiment that showed that you can form organic molecules from different situations. Well, that's fine and dandy, but those organic molecules aren't alive. 
And when you look at the statistics to get from those organic molecules to the components of a cell, we're talking many, 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 many times over, something like 3,000 times over, if I'm not mistaken, what's called the universal probability bound, which is all the chemical interactions in the history of the universe according to their time scale, not ours. And so we just don't have enough time for anything like that to have occurred. Next, even if we gave them all three of those things, there must be an explanation for the existence of design and information in the universe, which we see everywhere. There's no naturalistic explanation for that level of design and information that we see throughout the universe. Finally, even if we gave them all four of those things, which I think would be a little too generous, especially for it to ever be called science, at that point it would be nothing but faith, there would still have to be an explanation for the existence of matter and the universe and how it could have come from nothing. We know that it didn't come from nothing on its own, if that makes sense. The first law of thermodynamics tells us that matter and energy can't be created or destroyed. There had to be a supernatural mechanism by which everything that we see came into existence. So that kind of tells you that naturalism falls apart as a worldview, as a perspective on life. We have to look further than just naturalism. Other worldviews, I would contend, lack the evidence that we find in Christianity. And I guess you can be the judge of that. Compare them for yourself and see if they're coherent, if they correspond with reality, and if they are worth putting your faith and trust in. I won't go any deeper into that because I would rather talk about why we can believe in Jesus. And that's going to start with the best acronym, which is an acronym designed to defend the existence of God. So B stands for the beginning of the universe and life. Two biggies there, but they're both in this first letter of the acronym. This has traditionally been called the cosmological argument for God's existence. There are many versions of the cosmological argument that philosophers have described for many hundreds of years, but it basically goes something like this. Anything that begins to exist had a cause. Does that make sense? And we know that this world and this universe began to exist. We know that from science, and we know that if they had been here for eternity, then entropy would have run its course and we'd see nowhere any sort of order. And so we know that it hasn't been around for infinity, so we know that, that there was a beginning to this universe and that it began to exist. Now, if that's the case, it had to have a cause outside of itself to cause it to exist. The critic might say, that's not the case. I'd say, name one causeless cause or causeless effect. Does that make sense? At some point, there had to be something greater than it all to cause it to be. That's the cosmological argument for God's existence. So logic di dictates that there needs to be a supernatural creator, and science corroborates this. You might have heard this described as the Big Bang, okay? Big Bang cosmology and physics is phenomenal, and it's providing evidence that can't be refuted in the sense that there is empirical evidence that this whole universe began out of nothing a finite time ago. You could look at cosmic microwave background radiation. You could look at the redshift of distant galaxies. You could look at a lot of these different things, and they're going to tell you there was a time when this whole universe began to exist. That's what physicists call the standard model, and there is nobody that's with any kind of credibility about to back down on it now. Now, as biblical creationists, we know what this is all about. This is creation as described in Genesis 1. Science might be calling it something different, but no matter what you want to call it, this universe began to exist supernaturally out of nothing a finite time ago. Right? Also, life began to exist in a supernatural way 
that science alone cannot define. So we look at this and we realize that there had to be a cause for the universe, and the best explanation is that that cause was something greater than the universe that caused it. We could go on. There's a lot more to talk about, but I hope that's somewhat compelling. In my mind, that's probably the greatest evidence for the existence of God in kind of those types of realms. It's very solid. Next, we have the engineering of the universe for life. This universe doesn't just exist, but it exists in such a way as to make life possible. Does that make sense? There are many, many, many different constants and parameters that have to be exactly right for life on this earth to be possible. Let me just explain one of those. It's water. It's not a very complex issue. We all know about water. Now, water is less dense as a solid than as a liquid, which is very rare for molecules. It doesn't happen very often in the natural world. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's the only molecule that's less dense as a solid than as a liquid. Now, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal until we realize that that allows ice to float. If ice didn't float, when the top of the water froze, ice would sink. And then it would freeze over again, and it would sink, and it would freeze over again, and it would sink, and it would freeze over again, and it would sink. And before you knew it, the oceans would literally be ice. The oceans buffer the temperature of our Earth, maintaining a temperature that allows life. If ice didn't float, we'd all be an ice cube. We wouldn't be able to survive on this planet. That's just one, and there are countless other parameters just like that, and even more stringent, that make it evident that we're not an accident. This was all designed for Sarah to be here tonight. Isn't that incredible? It's not just a random accident. It's amazing. And not only is it designed to sustain life, but it's designed in such a way that living human being observers would be able to discover that it was designed to sustain life. In other words, God wanted us to know that he engineered this for us so that we might come to him. Isn't that phenomenal? So the engineering of the universe for life is a phenomenal, phenomenal example. When you look around the planet and you look at all the design you see, whether that's the countless amino acids your body synthesizes every second, I think it's 150 to 10, times 10 to the 18th, and this is a large number of amino acids happening in your body every second, right? There is an incredible amount of design in this universe, and it didn't come from nothing. It was designed by a designer. This has traditionally been called the teleological argument for God's existence, and I think it's a strong one, that there was a good creator that desired to create you right, to be able to find him and enjoy a relationship with him. Okay, the next one is standards, ethics, and morality. That's the S in the BEST acronym. Now, this has traditionally been called the moral argument for God's existence, and it goes something like this. We all know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We would all say love is good and hate is bad, right? Now, the fact that you believe that very strongly indicates that you believe that there is an objective moral law that's greater than yourself. You can't just do whatever you want without any consequences. You believe there's something holding me to this standard. Murder is wrong. Rape is wrong. Hate is wrong. We know those things. And we know those intuitively because we know that there is an objective law giver and enforcer. Somebody that can hold me to it. Now, if naturalism were correct, that would mean that anything you could possibly decide to do would be okay. It's just how nature works. You could phrase it like this. Atoms don't have morals. Does that make sense? A hydrogen atom isn't going to get mad at another hydrogen atom because they bumped into each other. <laughs> right? Atoms don't have morals. The fact that you do indicates that you know there's an objective moral law giver and enforcer. 
This is a compelling evidence for the existence of God. Because for somebody to say God doesn't exist, they have to equally on the other side say, no moral law exists. Or they might have to say that we derive that from some other area, like maybe logic. I know in philosophy some people have tried to say, well, logic gives us morality. But I'd say that's not objective because nobody's holding you to logic. Still, if you wake up and decide to kill your neighbor and take his house, you could say, well, I don't like logic. Who are you to stop me, <laughs> right? So it's not objective in that it cannot enforce that in any kind of objective way on you. But we all know that there's right and wrong. I put this to an atheist that we were debating once. It was actually across the hall in Noble 130. We were having a debate. This debate is actually online, but I started recording it about halfway through, and I don't know if I got this comment from him. But I said on there, if there's no objective morality, because as an atheist, that's what he has to defend. I said, if there's no objective morality, then what would be wrong with me ramming a knife through your stomach? Okay, how does he have to answer? He said, I can't tell you it would be wrong. I would just personally find it unpleasant. Isn't that crazy? Okay, but that's, the, that's where somebody has to go if they decide there is no objective moral lawgiver and enforcer. That's what's traditionally been called the moral argument for God's existence. And I'll tell you, it resonates true with me. Malcolm Muggeridge said, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, while at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. We know that we don't live up to the standard in our own mind, much less the standard in God's word. Today we remember a tragedy that happened in our country 11 years ago, where we saw evil on display, where we saw gratuitous evil and murder and violence. And I don't want to dwell on that today because there's so much more hope than what happened on that day. But what I can tell you is that day nobody was arguing there's no such thing as evil, right? I was right here on this campus when that happened, and I know what we talked about. We all realize there's a real right and a real wrong, and that's because there's a real objective moral law, all-powerful God that can enforce that and give that. Okay, the truth about Jesus, the T and the best acronym... And I put this under the section about the evidence for God because I believe it's compelling. As Christians, we believe that Jesus was God in human flesh. The Bible says that. Jesus affirmed that. And that is a core belief of Christianity. So if we're talking about the existence of God, I think we should end with the truth about Jesus. Now, a lot of people might think, and these would be people that have not investigated the evidence, they might think there's not good evidence that Jesus ever lived, right? Some people might say that. I've never heard a, an educated critic say that. In academia, that's never going to get said. Even the biggest critics against the scriptures will quickly grant that not only did Jesus live, but we see a parallel of him in extra-biblical history that pretty much confirms what we see in the Bible. It doesn't disagree with it, for sure. It might state it in different ways. Like, in the extra-biblical literature, it might say Jesus was a sorcerer, while in the Bible it says he worked miracles. Both say he was doing supernatural things. Does that make sense? They might have had a different take on it, but they both agree that he was doing some pretty amazing stuff, right? So you might see different things like that, but they're both going to agree with a lot of the same evidence. Now, those extra-biblical references to Christ, this will amaze you. So let's say we threw away everything the Bible says about Jesus, 
Okay, just threw it away. We have no reason to do that because it was written by eyewitnesses for the most part. Sometimes it was written by people that interviewed eyewitnesses, different parts of those accounts. But predominantly, we have a very good eyewitness account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, even if you threw that away, which no good historian would do, and we took just the accounts of Christ's life, death, and resurrection outside of Scripture, we would still have as many or more references to Christ's life outside of Scripture than to Tiberius Caesar, who ruled the known world of Jesus' time. Does that kind of strike you as amazing? <laughs> so the idea that there's no evidence for him is crazy. And what's important to remember is the evidence, even outside of the Bible, corroborates the picture that we see inside the Bible. I want to be careful to say it doesn't say the same thing, right? So the Jewish account, for example, might say that the body was stolen on the third day, while the Christian account says he rose from the dead and the skeptics said that the body was stolen. So it agrees with what the skeptics said. But what's fascinating is the skeptical account corroborates the fact that the body was not there on the third day. Does that make sense? So we know even from outside of Scripture that he died on a cross, that the body was gone on the third day, that his disciples believed that they had seen the risen Christ, that not just his disciples did, but over 500 eyewitnesses. We see some compelling reasons to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what the Bible says he did, and that he can offer you the eternal life that he offered all those that put their trust in him. Now, outside of his promises, backed up by his conquering death, I can't think of any reasonable hope on this planet. But see, in him we do have hope, and it's based in history. So those are some of the historical reasons to trust Christ, I would say, C.S. Lewis said either Christ was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And you'll remember C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, C.S. Lewis said anybody that claimed to be God and knew that he was lying would be a liar. Okay? And he said anybody that claimed to be God but didn't know that he was mistaken would be a lunatic. Because who makes that kind of claim? Right? The only option that we have other than liar or lunatic is that he really was what he claimed to be. And C.S. Lewis then says, if we evaluate the evidence, we know he wasn't a liar because he lived the most perfect life that's ever been lived. We know he wasn't a lunatic because his teachings revolutionized the entire known world. And so we're all left with one compelling evidence, and that's that he is Lord and God as he claimed, and that each of us have to respond to him on his level, not our own perception. So when you hear people say, Jesus was just a good moral teacher or whatever, you can say, that's not the historical account that we have, nor the biblical account that we have. He was a good teacher, but he was something much, much more than that. Okay, so there's the best acronym, beginning of the universe and life, the engineering of the universe for life, standards and morality, and the truth about Jesus. I believe all that confirms that there is a God and that he lived on this planet in the man Jesus Christ, providing a way for each of us to have a relationship with him. That leads us to the FACTS acronym. The FACTS acronym, again, gives evidence for believing the scriptures. F stands for foretells the future. Some people have said there are over 2,500 prophecies in scripture. The reason there's some ambiguity there is there are some things that we don't know. Is that a prophecy or just poetry or something like that? What we do know is there are countless hundreds of prophecies which are clear and have been fulfilled. And there are more that are being fulfilled even in our lifetimes. Okay? Those prophecies cannot just be written off. Once I was talking to a critic, a skeptic, and he said, why do you believe the Bible? And I said, well, let's start with fulfilled prophecy. The Bible makes prophetic claims, and they were actually fulfilled in history. 
And he, he started cussing at me. It was so funny. <laughs> and then he caught himself and he goes, oh my gosh, I got a little out of control. And I, I felt like that is a typical response to this. People think, oh, you're crazy for believing in prophecy. Why do they think that? If naturalism is true, then prophecy can't be. There's no way anybody could foretell the future. Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> the Bible does that. It shows me there is a God, and he's expressing himself in the Bible. Again, not one or two, but countless hundreds of prophecies. Jesus alone fulfilled over 100 prophecies. Again, some would say over 300. Again, there are reasons that there might be different numbers. For example, I think it's Hosea 11, one says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Some people would say that's a prophecy that was fulfilled when Jesus' parents returned him from Egypt back to Israel. Others would say it's a prophecy about when Israel itself was freed from Egypt. No matter what you call it, it's a prophecy, right? But it might or might not be about Jesus, okay? But there are some that are absolutely no doubt about Christ, and there are about a hundred of those, such as where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and we know from history he was, such as how the Messiah would die, the fact that he would die by crucifixion. And before we think that's just a, a small issue, that was a thousand years before Christ that that prophecy was made. And you're not going to believe this. It was before crucifixion was even invented. So it's pretty outstanding to see this level of prophecy and fulfillment in Scripture. And it's both in the Old and New Testament. And there are many other examples of it. Alexander the Great prophesied in amazing detail the rebuilding of Jerusalem by, Tyre, uh, by Cyrus, the destruction of Tyre. You could literally go on and on. Again, in, in these booklets, I've included some QR codes that will link to some more information. So I think the one there on prophecy will link to some more prophecies that have been fulfilled. Also, on the back, I gave you the godsolutionshow.com, which is the radio show I do every week about stuff like this. I did a whole show on messianic prophecy that's been fulfilled. I went through eight prophecies. The reason I picked eight is the statistics for that have been calculated at 1 and 10 to the 17th power. Astronomical. Jesus fulfilled again over 100. But I just went through eight in accordance with that amazing statistic to show how, how valid this is. Okay, so there are many different prophecies in Scripture. I think the only conclusion one could come to is that God himself wrote this book and gave it to us with his fingerprints all over it. And a big fingerprint being fulfilled prophecy. I don't see that in any other religious text either. Other religious texts often do make prophetic claims. And as we saw last year with Harold Camping, you guys remember that awesome story? <laughs> they don't come true. Remember he said Jesus is coming back in May, and then it didn't happen. And he said, well, he came back spiritually in May, he's coming back physically in October. October rolled around, didn't happen. <laughs> so he kept getting proven wrong. Right? And that's what typically happens when different religious entities make prophetic claims. And we see a different thing in the Bible. We see they actually come true. And some are coming true in our lifetimes. Okay, no natural explanation for that. A, in the FACTS acronym, it's archaeologically accurate. I've recently heard it said, and this was in The World and the Word, right? It's a, a grad school class textbook that we recently read that discusses a lot about Old Testament history and things like that. And these guys, who are the experts in their field, made a very bold claim. And they, they're the experts that can support this. They said there has never in history been an archaeological discovery that has discredited the Bible. That's a bold claim. So when we look at Scripture and we realize it's archaeologically accurate, 
it bears the hallmarks of trustworthiness, right? So the Bible talks about real places, real people, real events corroborated in history. Uh, the Hittites, for example, for years, critics said they didn't exist. And then we found, oh, actually, they do exist. Now we've discovered multiple cities. We've discovered their language. We've discovered their history, their interactions with other cultures. The Bible is right all along, and it took modern history a long time to catch up. Here are a few big finds that have corroborated the credibility of Scripture. These are just a few. And you guys can go Google like the top 10 biblical archaeological finds and find a lot of these, things like that. I got these from a website called Biblical Studies. Anyway, the Merne some of them, some of them I've just uh, from other sources. The Merneptah Stella is the first extra-biblical mention of Israel. And it goes back to 1250 B.C., um, so a lot of the critics said Israel didn't even exist back then. They kind of made up their history after the fact. Well, we have ancient corroboration of Israel as a nation. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the late 40s. They corroborated the Old Testament. Right? Before that, our most recent Old Testament manuscript was much later than our oldest New Testament manuscript. Did I say that right? Our oldest Old Testament manuscript. It was pretty recent. The Dead Sea Scrolls go back to, to like... 200 B.C. to shortly after uh, the A.D.s, right? So they go way back and they corroborate the Old Testament account that we have, showing that the text was transmitted well, didn't change into myth over time, right? The critics were excited about the Dead Sea Scrolls disproving the reliability of the Bible, <laughs> and they got the surprise of their lifetime to figure out that that wasn't the case. The Tel Dan inscription described the house or empire of David. This was phenomenal, too, because a lot of critics said King David of the Old Testament is a mythical figure. He was just made up, right? Until very recently, they found an inscription going back to his timeline or to his time frame that talked about the house of David. They've since found other corroborations of that. Now we know that David was a historical figure, not just a mythical creation. Okay? The amulet scroll supports an early date for Judaism. That was found recently. Jeremiah, who wrote in the Old Testament, his scribe was Baruch, who wrote down what he said. They've actually found Baruch's signet ring that he would seal wax seals with, right? Is that not phenomenal? They have no doubt that it belonged to the scribe of the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, the Moabite stone confirmed that the Israelites worshipped Yahweh, which critics again said was written much later after the exile, back into their history. We know now that that's not the case. The ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest that oversaw some of Jesus' trial and, and led to his execution, the high priest of that time, we found his actual bones. Uh, pretty phenomenal stuff. Pontius Pilate is described in another inscription. He's actually the guy that sentenced Christ to death. When we start looking at the historical accounts of Christ, they're phenomenal. We look at the book of Acts, for example, and I think there are 84 historically confirmed statements in Acts. So we see this wealth of history. And then right alongside it, we hear about Christ's resurrection. And right alongside it, we hear about people being risen from the dead. Right? If we can trust his historical pronouncements, we can trust everything else he says in an unembellished way right there in the book of Acts. He also wrote the book of Luke, which talks about the life of Christ. We can trust that too. You could go on and on like this, but the historical reliability of Scripture is phenomenal. Okay, so it's archaeologically accurate. C, it's contradiction-free. A lot of people always say, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? And I've heard many of these brought up to me. 
some of them seem very, very silly, okay? Like in Titus, Paul tells Titus that one of their own prophets, talking about the Cretans, has said that Cretans are always liars, okay? And I've heard critics say, well, if Cretans are always liars, then they would be lying about always being liars. In other words, they wouldn't always be liars, <laughs> okay? And so I've actually heard people try to say that that shows that the Bible is wrong because it agreed with this supposedly self-refuting statement. Well, first of all, being a liar and telling only lies are two different things. You only have to tell one lie to be a liar, right? But if you were, if you were telling every single word is a lie, I don't even think you could do that, okay? So in that statement, it's not saying that every word they say, including the statement that's being said, is a lie. It's just saying that the people that Titus was dealing with are all liars. And there's every reason in the world to believe that that probably was the case. Okay, so there are crazy examples like that. One of my favorite contradictory type statements that I always hear is that in 1 Kings we hear about pi equaling 3.0. Have you guys ever heard that? Is anybody in here? You guys don't have any atheist friends. <laughs> okay, almost every atheist I talk with says, the Bible says pi is 3.0. And you go, why is that? And they go back to this obscure passage in 1 Kings about an object of art, a basin, that Solomon's artisans crafted. And they say that the... The uh, circumference of it and the diameter, if you do the math, you come up with pi equaling 3.0. Well, it's talking about a brass object that was hammered out of metal with lilies inlaid around the entire rim. So there's no suggestion that it's a perfect circle. It's an object of art. And the fact that it comes out at 3.0 tells us they were really good artists, <laughs> right? They were really good craftsmen. But there's no claim that this is some mathematical truth that pi equals 3.0. So I start hearing things like this, and it, and it seems like critics are really grasping at straws to come up with contradictions, quote-unquote. Another one might be something like this. Jesus said that he would be in the tomb three days and three nights, when we know he wasn't. Well, at least we don't know that. It seems like, when we look at it, that he was in the tomb for, three, for parts of three days. Does that make sense? It doesn't seem like it was three times 24, 72 full hours. There are some apologists that would say that he was in the tomb for 70 full, 72 full hours. I, I don't know whether or not we have enough evidence to make that call. What I do know is three days and three nights was an idiom used in the Hebrew language of that time. I think we see a reference to that actually in the book of Esther, where Esther says, wait three days and three nights, and then I'll go to the king. It's kind of the same type of idea, if I'm not mistaken. I lived in Romania for a while. Josh knows this. Do you know this phrase? Unan desile. You've heard it, right? Okay, so somebody says, I'm going to go to America in Unan Desile. That means like next year. Nobody says that meaning literally 365 days, and to translate because you don't know Romanian probably, other than Josh, it means in one year of days. Does that make sense? So if you took that literally, you'd say they're going to leave 365 exact days from today. Well, I don't think I've ever heard it used that way. It means next year. Does that make sense? So sometimes from our modern American context, we'll see an idiom and think, oh, it's a contradiction. Or we'll see something that would have been plain knowledge to the readers of that time, and we'll read into it our own culture, which we should never do. Upon a little bit of investigation, though, those evaporate. You guys, there are a lot of things like this that might get thrown out. What I want you to know is there are good answers to all of them, and you can check those out. So contradiction-free. When we look at the fact that the Bible was written by so many different authors over so many different years from different cultures and backgrounds, from all these different perspectives, and somehow they agreed together 
on issues of life and eternity and sin and salvation and God. You couldn't get all of us to agree on all those topics, right? But the fact that all the Bible's authors did and they didn't contradict each other is phenomenal. And I know somebody might say, well, the books in the Bible were just cherry-picked, whichever ones they wanted, right? That's not the case either. The conditions for canonicity, I'll put it that way, were stringent. And they were not allowed to include books that were written 200 years after the time of Christ that talked about several thousand foot talking crosses, like the Gospel of Peter, okay? That was a Gnostic Gospel. It came much later. It had fictional accounts. And obviously, everybody knew it's not legitimate, okay? So when skeptics try and say, oh, they just cherry-picked what they wanted to be in the Bible, they're dead wrong. They picked the earliest manuscripts that had been written by authors that were trusted, that had all been used by the church from the beginning, and that had solid doctrine. In other words, they didn't talk about 2,000-foot talking crosses. I like to poke fun at the Gospel of Peter. It's not in the Bible. It's fictional. And it was not included for good reason. So if somebody tries to tell you the authors agree only because they cherry-picked what they wanted to be in there, that's not the case. Okay, T in the acronym, and we're trying to go fast here, is translated correctly. We've all heard the statement that you can't trust the Bible because it's been translated so many times we don't even know what was originally written. People might remind you of the telephone game you maybe played as a child, saying by the time it got around the room, nobody knew what was originally stated. Well, there's a big problem with that. And the problem is, is there are many thousands of manuscripts of the biblical documents, okay? In the New Testament, there are somewhere around 24,000 early manuscripts in the Greek and in the Latin. So when we look at that body of manuscripts, we can go back and look what was originally written. We don't have the original manuscripts, okay, which critics might try to say is a problem. It's actually a good thing. Right. If you wanted to change something in the Bible and you had one original document, what would you have to do? Just change one thing. Now you've changed everything. Does that make sense? The fact that we have 24,000 manuscripts and not just one original, nobody could go make that change 24,000 times without it being known. Does that make sense? So even the fact that we don't have the bare originals actually preserves the credibility of Scripture in the long run. The fact that we do have this large quantity. In that quantity, lest you think that they might differ with each other, are in 98.5% unity with each other. Does that make sense? There are errors in some of those manuscripts. That's not a problem. We as Christians don't have to believe every single manuscript ever copied was copied correctly. Right? In fact, in my notes today, I made mistakes. What we do know is because we, see, we have so many of them, whenever there is a mistake made, we can catch it. Does that make sense? We know what wasn't originally there and what was originally there. I'm going to give you one example of something that we know wasn't originally there. Okay? That's John chapter 8, a large portion of it, the beginning portion of it. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. We've all heard this, right? Where Jesus said, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. That's not in the original manuscripts. If you look in most modern translations of that passage, you'll find lines marking that whole passage off saying none of the early or most credible manuscripts have this story. Okay? It got preserved through history because some of the early translations and copies of the Bible included it. So later, like today in your Bible, it'll be there in case you're looking for it, but with notes that this isn't original. Does that make sense? So we have so many copies and manuscripts that we quickly find out if anything isn't where it's supposed to be. Are you getting the picture? 
So when I say 98.5% agreement, I'm not saying that that's the level that we can trust the Bible. We can trust it 100% because there's so little error across the manuscripts, we quickly see when there is an error. Does that make sense? Okay, you'll hear this. And I'm being a little long-winded here. I really want you to get this. Some skeptics will say, and the biggest skeptic of the, bibl- of the biblical accuracy right now, we'll put it this way. He'll say there are over 400,000 errors in the New Testament. What would be the logical thing that you probably think of? Well, that, that's the reason. See, Leah's ahead of us. There aren't even 400,000 verses in the New Testament, okay? So right off the bat, you know, this is quite the story. I mean, are you trying to tell me every single thing in the New Testament is wrong? So here's what he does. Over the period of time that those manuscripts were written, there were punctuation changes. Or punctuation came to exist where it hadn't before. Or there were spelling changes. Like in English, maybe it went from C-O-L-O-R to C-O-L-O-U-R. Similar thing in the Greek, right? Now what he'll say is, this one word, it's spelled differently in these 10,000 copies and in these 10,000 copies. Okay? That means there are 10,000 errors. And the word is used five times, 50,000 errors. Is that incredible? <laughs> it's, it's, so you again see what the critic has to do. It's grasping at straws to try and write this stuff off. Okay? Now, out of all those supposed errors that he comes up with, again, somewhere around 98.5% of them are not even translatable into English. <laughs> That's how irrelevant they are, right? Some of the few that are translatable would be things like the John 8 passage, which that's not news to anybody that's ever studied the Bible. We know that that wasn't supposed to be there. Does that make sense? So what he's trying to do is tell you something is an issue that people have known for a really long time is not an issue. One of this guy's biggest critics, who's a Christian apologist defending the accuracy of Scripture, and I would um, I'd say he's much sharper on this stuff. He puts it this way. He said, this other critic does a really good job at scaring le- lay people, but he's not convincing any critics. So that's, that's a good way to kind of understand where this stands. So you can be confident that the Bible you have today, unless it's a weird translation from a weird sect group that's been intentionally changed, okay, like the New World Translation has been changed several hundred times, uh, so we don't accept that translation. And it's been done for theological reasons. They don't believe what Christians believe, and they're trying to change it. Well, the Bible that you have, if it's any modern translation, it's a very good representation of exactly what was originally written. And you can trust that. So translate it correctly. So finally, S, and I'm going to keep it short, and this is my favorite one to talk about, because my background is in chemistry, and I love science. But the Bible talks a lot about science. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. I'm not saying that. The Bible doesn't claim to be that, and it isn't that. God gave us all good minds so that we could learn science. And as somebody that has a degree in it, I'd encourage all of you to learn science. The Bible does, however, make incredible scientific pronouncements that cannot just be explained away or forgotten. I was talking to an atheist once, and I said, what if I told you the Bible talks about radioactive decay 2,000 years ago? He goes, well, it doesn't. I said, well, what if I told you it did? He goes, but it doesn't. I said, okay, let's just pretend you're not an atheist. Just pretend that it did. What if it did? What if I showed you that it did? He goes, it doesn't. I said, well, if it did, would that be amazing? He goes, it would definitely be amazing, but it doesn't. (laughs) Okay? Well, I showed him. In 2 Peter 3.10, we hear about the elements, which actually in the Greek comes from the same word that we get the modern word stoichiometry from in chemistry. The elements will decompose with a lot of heat coming out. 
they'll release a lot of heat. That's nuclear fission, and it's almost a textbook definition, right? Written about 1,900 years after the Bible described it. That's pretty phenomenal. Hydrologic cycles of water and evaporation and things like that, pretty big. Atmospheric jet streams, I don't know how they could have figured that out. Clouds and condensation, again, pretty awesome. The spherical shape of the earth written in the oldest book in the Bible. So much for the Bible thinking the earth was flat, right? This is phenomenal. In fact, that's also a myth, though, too. The idea that everybody thought the Bible was flat during um, Columbus's time. I know that encyclopedias at the time described it otherwise. So that is somewhat of a myth, but it isn't a valid criticism of Christianity. Does that make sense that the Bible says the earth is flat? It doesn't. In fact, it says it's spherical. The expansion of the universe is described multiple times in Scripture. This is something that wasn't even discovered until Hubble found it based on Einstein's work and on his own. And guess what? That's one of the great evidences for the beginning of the universe. So we're back to the first issue here. If the universe is expanding, it had to have a starting point. The Bible says multiple times it is expanding. Physics has confirmed that. The Bible says that the earth is hung on nothing. Pretty phenomenal statement. The Bible says the air has weight. Again, phenomenal. Talks about the second law of thermodynamics multiple times. It doesn't call it that. But it talks about how the whole universe is wearing out like a garment. We know that from science. Talks about how life begets like a biological law. It talks about the earth's molten uh, inner core. Job 28.5. Somebody might say that's a reference to mining. So maybe that's not it. But it seems like it could be talking about a lot more. The beginning of the universe... And it's beginning with light, okay? This is phenomenal. If you look at modern physics, there was a beginning to the universe. Yes, as the Bible says. Also, just like the Bible says it began with light, with God saying, let there be light, the standard theory says that that is how it began, with light. It didn't begin with the particles that we have today, okay? Does that make sense? You start to see some just amazing things. Finally, I thought I'd close with this scientific example. The Bible says in multiple places that Jesus' return to this earth will be seen across the globe. So, first of all, before you think Harold Camping knows when Jesus is coming back, (laughs) and before you fear that you might have missed it, you're not going to miss it. (laughs) When Christ comes back, everybody will be able to see this across the planet, okay? But now, why is that phenomenal, do you think, written 2,000 plus years ago? What is it? prophesying there, but also it's a scientific reality. How could you see one thing worldwide? Television, okay? So the Bible's making a prophetic claim about Jesus Christ's return, saying everybody would be able to see it from wherever they're at on the globe. We know today that that's possible. They had no way of knowing that was possible. It was both a scientific reality that that could be, but it was also a prophetic claim about the future, okay? So now that is just the last science, and it kind of touches on prophecy, but it's something I wanted to talk about. So facts foretell us the future, archaeologically accurate, contradiction-free, translated correctly, scientific statements. When you look at this, I think you have every reason in the world as a believer to believe that God's word is the inerrant and infallible word of God. And you can live your life by it. In fact, I'd put it this way. A lot of times, we do this project called Crush Beer in the summers, And we'll have students doing all these crazy things. And a lot of you guys have done it. A lot of you guys have helped lead it. It's a lot of fun. Changes students' lives. But one thing we've done a lot, you were on it this year, Cody. One thing we've done a lot, and we didn't do it this year because they're having this bat issue. 
is we take students caving. And in the back of a cave, I would say, everybody turn off their headlamps. So it's pitch black in this cave, you know, we're real deep under. I said, okay, how is your friend's advice going to get you out of here? And everybody's like, my friend is just as in trouble as I am. It's pitch black. They can't see a thing. How would your feelings get you out of here? Uh, my feelings aren't going to do a thing. It's pitch black. I might feel that the right way is that way, but it might be a cliff that way. <laughs> right? My feelings are irrelevant. My friend's advice is irrelevant. Right? What can get you out of that cave? Flicking on a light. Now, it's the same thing for us. We're all in this world where we don't get very far on our own intuition, on our own emotions. Right? You, I'm going to put it online. I'm pretty sure none of you came up with calculus on your own because your mind was that sharp. I sure didn't. Okay? Now, if I can't even come up with something like that on my own, how am I going to discover, discover the spiritual truth of the universe? See, I can't do it on my own. It needs to be revealed to me from the one that knows it, and that's God. And I believe the Bible has every evidence you could ask for as being that divinely revealed truth of God. Okay, so I'd encourage you to get familiar with some of these arguments. Use that tool if... Your friend tells you you're just one of those stupid Christians. Um, use it. You know, get to, get to, get to look at it and, and uh, use it as a tool. Here's my encouragement to you. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now that's from Scripture, 1 Peter 3.15. We talked about this at the Q&A in my house recently. Be gentle and respectful as you talk about some of this stuff. Don't just bash people over the head with it. Right? Because the real message isn't just how much you know, but it's how much God loves this friend of yours. For you, if you're struggling with doubt about your own worldview, I would encourage you to look for the answers, and you will find them. And I hope that that will be encouraging to you. So, ultimately, the greatest news is that Jesus died for each of our sins so that we could have a relationship with him. Um, you know, there's more about that in there, so I won't go into it tonight. If you have a prayer request, put it on that note card. I hope that that encouraged you a little bit. What we could do is I'm going to close because we're almost to the, to the time to close. And if you want to stay and ask questions or talk more, that's totally cool. But I do want to respect your time. I'll put it like this too. If you want to ask more questions, come to my house Thursday night because it is designed just for this. Or ask it on the connect wall. Most of you are on the connect wall. Ask it on the connect wall and we'll discuss it there. So right now I'm going to pray. And then if you want to go, go. And, uh, and then if you want to stay and talk, stay and talk. God, thank you so much that we really can know that you exist and we can really know that you've revealed your will to us in the Bible. God, I pray that you'd help us be gentle and respectful with those that really do criticize you and that we'd really be able to lovingly show them the truth, God. And I pray that you would help everyone here know you in a deep and personal way. God, I thank you so much for all you've done for us and the fact that you died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could each be here tonight. We love you, Jesus. Amen.